right, I hope everybody's doing well, and you'll turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. I have to confess to you, I, Christmas is my favorite time of the year. Is it yours? And uh, I used to think that I liked Christmas more than anybody until I met my wife. My wife, I tell you, uh, I love her to death. And the thing about her is that, man, she can take Christmas and she... Uh, she makes it even better than I even thought it was before. And uh, she, she's a decorator. Uh, I can just uh, come. When is it, baby? You normally set up your trees. First week, week of November, is that what you said? All right. First week, I want to make sure I quote it right because I'll pay for it later if I don't. And so first week of November, I mean, she's like, if we're going to set all this stuff up, we might as well enjoy it. And I tell you what, I, I'm actually, I'm starting, over the years, I'm, I'm kind of caving in a little bit, and I'm starting to actually enjoy doing it that way. And so uh, uh, this time of the year is just fantastic. I love hearing the songs. Last night when we were at the Nativity, and you hear these kids that are singing these Christmas carols, it just really sets the mood for you to be ready for us to celebrate Christ's coming and the fact that he was born. You know, Christmas carols are as old as Christmas itself. And that's why we've been looking at what we have called the, the songs of Christmas. As we're going back to even before the first original Christmas, and we're being reminded of the people that sang at the time of Christ's coming. And it's been a good reminder for all of us. Do you remember as a kid anticipating the Christmas presents? Do you guys, I mean, surely people in here, you, you just remember what it was like to anticipate the gift that you were going to get. I was horrible at that. I was actually just, I struggled because I wanted to know what my parents got me. And, and, and I know, I see my kids now, they pick up the presents and they begin to shake it. And they try to start guessing what it is. And I just, I'll sometimes tease them. I'll say, well, you guess right, we're taking it back. I'm just joking. But, um, so, but I can remember on a one specific Christmas, I was just anticipating it so much that my parents made the mistake of telling me they were going to be gone for a while. And you know what that meant for me? I went Christmas gift hunting, all right? And I was searching the entire house. I was going everywhere. I knew where my parents' spots were. And I'll just confess to you, I was not the brightest guy, but man, it got to me. Parents are going to be gone. There's Christmas gifts in the house. I'm going to find it. I'm going to hunt it down. I'm going to pull it out if it hasn't been wrapped, and I'm going to see what it's like, and I'll put it back. They'll never even know. And so they were gone for a while, and I can remember that year I got a Sega Genesis. Anybody remember those things? And Sonic the Hedgehog, I got it and I, I hooked it up to the TV. And I, I, yeah, I know your mouths are dropping open. Well, uh, yeah, I was deceptive. And so um, the thing was is that I got that thing out and I played it and I was putting it, I, I knew I had one hour, all right, one hour to get this out and I did it. I played it, I put it back in the box. I mean, I, I didn't have a cell phone then. That's back before teenage when you didn't have that. And so um, what we did was I, I was like, I put it back to the best of my ability, wrapped it all back up. But here was the problem. It bothered me so much that I, I was in anticipation of my parents catching me that I never did that again. I was sweating. And when I was opening up the, the, the Christmas present, I was hoping, oh, Lord, please make sure I put this back the correct way so they don't suspect it. But you remember what it was like to anticipate Christmas, right? And when I was thinking about that, that's exactly what the Jews were like during the time of Luke chapter 1. They were living in anticipation of a coming Messiah. 
It was a, fan, uh, it was a terrible time in their history. Uh, it was a time when the Jews had very little to sing about. It was a time where uh, there had been over 400 years since there had been a song written. There was over 400 years since a book of a Bible was even written down. There had been no revelation from God because it was during this time that was called the silent period, which is 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. There had been no new revelation from God. God wasn't speaking and it was a terrible time in Jewish history. But during that time, we noticed that in the book of Malachi chapter 4, God had given a promise, a promise that would give them hope for the future. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, we'll put it up on the screen and this is what it says. Malachi chapter 4 verse 2, it says this, all right. Uh, but unto you that fear my name shall the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings. It was a promise that there was, the sun was going to eventually come up, that there would be hope on the horizon that one day the Messiah would come and that Israel would no longer be underneath this dark shadows of a very difficult season uh, in their country. No one knew when it would happen. And in the time of Luke chapter 1, we find that the Jewish people were living in a very difficult time. This is what they were going through. First of all, their spiritual leaders were terrible. They were corrupt. And as a whole, when your religious leaders are corrupt, it makes it for a very difficult time for them. They couldn't trust them. They were leading them down a terrible path. Secondly, when you look in Luke chapter 1, verse 5, you find that the one that was ruling Judea at that time was King Herod. Now, you guys hear that name and you immediately think, well, that doesn't mean anything to me. King Herod was nuts. He was insane. This guy, uh, he, anybody that challenged his throne, he would have them killed. He killed two of his sons. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, he had gotten the title King of the Jews. You remember that? He ordered for all the boys in Bethlehem region to be killed. Same guy. This guy was just, uh, he was a lunatic. And, and as a result, it was a very, it was a dark season for the Jewish people. You have to understand that before we get into this story. Things were difficult. It was hard. And for most Jewish people, they were asking these types of questions. When's the Messiah going to come? When will we get out from this dark season in our history? It was difficult for them. When's the daybreak going to come? When are things going to change? When's things going to get better for us? And the promise from Isaiah had been that before the Messiah would return, there would be a forerunner that would come first that would prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah. All of them were living in anticipation of a prophet that would come and set up everything so that when Jesus came, that he would have his way prepared. They were wondering, when will this time come? Well, when you come to Luke chapter 1, you don't recognize it, but God is putting things into place. He's moving things into position for his plan to be pulled off. It's an incredible time, but he didn't know it. And there's this specific man who was a priest his name was Zechariah. He was going to be the father of the forerunner, 
the one that would prepare the way for the Messiah. Can you imagine being given that responsibility? And during this dark season, and, and as I kind of think of this setting, and as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we have to recognize that there's some people that when we talk about Christmas, it's a difficult season for them. For some people, it's a reminder of maybe loved ones that have passed away, and it's difficult. And just like this Jewish people that were questioning, is there any hope? Is there any way that things could get better? It's a question that I find that us as Americans were asking a lot, right? It seems like tensions are high. It seems like there's more division now than there's ever been before. There's so much infighting within our country, and it's dark season for our country right now. And people are asking the question, is there hope? Well, the, the, this lesson about Zechariah and about the Messiah and about the forerunner will actually show us that during this Christmas season, one of the reasons we celebrate Christmas so much is that it promises us hope in a child named Jesus Christ. We always have hope. Hope came 2,000 years ago in the birth of a Messiah. And so let's prepare our hearts. The first thing we need to do to be ready for this is that we need to understand the silencing of Zechariah. Most of you in here probably don't know a lot about him, right? Maybe you've read about it in passing, but Zechariah was an incredible man. Let's look at Luke chapter 1 and verses 5 through 7. This is what it says. A certain priest named Zacharias of the order of Abiah, and his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. And they had no child, because that Elizabeth was barren, and they both were now well stricken in years. You read this lesson and this verse, and you find that Zechariah and his wife, Elizabeth, were incredible people. They loved the Lord. They walked with him. Uh, they served the Lord but when you read this verse, you can't help but notice what's the problem. Their hearts are broken over the fact they can't have a child. They wanted one, and in their culture, it was considered a curse. You have to know that. People, when they looked at them, they would look at them, they would kind of look down on him. Even though he served the Lord as a priest, they would think, man, God's just not blessing him. And if you look back, eventually when they do have a child, you'll see that Elizabeth makes a statement. She said, now God has finally taken away uh, the disgrace from me. They felt looked down upon. Their hearts were broken and they begged God to have a child. But over time and because of their age, it was as if their opportunity was wasting away. No opportunity. They would have never imagined what God was about to do in their life. They would have never believed that God was moving the pieces into place, that just around the corner there was a better time for them that was just about to come. Now, let's look at this next passage as we walk through this. Verses 8 and 9, it says this, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. 
Now, we don't, we're not familiar with the Jewish system, so you'll have to give me a minute to explain it to you. In Zechariah's day, there was approximately 20,000 priests that were served the Lord during the course of the year. 20,000 priests. And the 20,000 priests would be divided up into 24 different divisions. 24 different groups of people that would actually come to serve at the temple. And on any given day, there would be 56 priests that would be working on the temple complex in Jerusalem. So here we find that uh, during his, he was actually serving as a priest during this time, and they would perform their duty for one week, and then after their week was up, they would return home, okay? And they would do that two times a year. Now, in order to, to the, there wouldn't be fighting amongst the priests, they would cast lots in order to figure out what job they would do within the temple, and so that there wouldn't be any infighting. Well, notice that in this verse, it says that according to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense. So when they were drawing the duties of what they would do within the, the temple, notice that Zachariah's job was to do what? Come on, burn incense. Burn incense. You're like, well, that's not a big deal. It actually was a huge deal. Because in their time, uh, what this role and responsibility would be is that when the people came to the temple on the day to worship, they would come at uh, usually at around nine o'clock and, 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 and uh, three o'clock in the afternoon. And so when they would come to the temple to worship, these three, there would be three priests that would go into the holy place that was just outside the holy of holies. And these three priests would do three different things. The first priest would clean the altar of incense off to make sure that it was pure and clean and ready to go. The second person had the role and responsibility of organizing the, the table of showbread to make sure everything was in order. The third person would do this. He would trim the wicks on the, the candles to make sure that they were ready to be burned. And then when their job was done, two of them would leave the holy place and walk out. And when that was finished, they would sound an instrument. And then this priest, this one whose job was to burn the incense on the altar, he would take the incense and he would sprinkle it over these hot coals. And there would be a smoke that would go up into the air. The smoke was meant to represent the worship of the people. And folks, listen, to get the role and the responsibility of burning the incense, they said would happen maybe one time in a person's lifetime. Maybe one time. And you could only do it one time in your entire life. After that, the role and responsibility would have to go to somebody else. And so here's the, here, you have to understand this, is that uh, when he gets the lot, to be able to burn the incense on the altar, that was a huge responsibility. It had probably never happened in his life, and he would have been excited about this, this opportunity to get to be the one that would burn the incense, and what are the chances that it would fall to Zechariah at just this season of his life? God is moving in a way that he can't even see. And so you follow along, and he's this man, he's going into, he's inside the, the temple, the holy place, and folks, when you read the passage, Luke chapter 1, this is what happens. It would have been, you have to kind of picture it in your mind. He's in the holy place, and typically, remember, there was only three priests that went in, and two of them had already gone out already, and out of nowhere, an angel appears, and it freaks Zachariah out. He wasn't ready for it. Just popped up on him. 
And this, the, he thought he was the only one that was in there. And this angel came to deliver a message to Zechariah. And I want you to see what it is that he says. Look at verse 13. But the angel said unto him, Fear not, Zechariah, for thy prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you will call his name what? John. Look at verses uh, 16 and 17. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of their fathers and to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Folks, you have no way of understanding how huge this news was. Folks, it had broken 400 years of silence where they had heard absolutely nothing from God. Zechariah would have been blown away that now the angel is delivering a message. Now God's revealing new truth. Something is about to happen. They're anticipating. He, he's ready because what happens is, is this angel quotes Malachi and he's telling them that you are going to have the child that will prepare the way for the Messiah, the one that will give his life for the world. Imagine that responsibility. It would have been incredible but you would think that a priest that just gets this message from an angel would be excited about it, that he would believe exactly what the angel had to say to him. Now, I want you to look at what he says here in this passage. Look at what happens, verses 20 through 22. And behold, thou shalt be dumb and not be able to speak until the day that these things shall be performed. Because you believe not my words, which shall be fulfilled in the season. And the people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he tarried so long in the temple. And when he came out, he couldn't speak unto them. And they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned unto them and remained speechless. Now, what had happened was this, is that the angel comes to him and he tells them, Zacharias, you're not going to be able to talk for a period of nine months. Because when the angel delivered the message to him, he didn't believe. You remember what he had said? If you go back and you look at verse 18, you'll notice that when the angel appeared and told him that news, he said, how in the world are we going to have a child? I'm old, and, and I love this. Guys, you would never say this about your wife. I, I wouldn't recommend it. But he said, my wife was stricken in years. I'm old. My wife is stricken in years. Man, that is a bad move, folks. But at least he was, the only, only witness was an angel. Now, what he meant by that was this. When he says that I'm old and my wife is, that sounds so much older, right? Okay, so anyway, uh, they were probably between the ages of 60 and 70 years old. And when he hears the news that he's going to have the forerunner to the Messiah, how in the world is this going to happen? What's funny about the passage is that when he says, God, how is this going to even take place? He says, Who, how? We're old. You know what the angel said to him? Is the verse 18? Look at what he says. For I am old and man, and my wife is well stricken in years. Look at verse 19. And the angel answered and said unto him, what? I'm Gabriel. But that's a fantastic answer. How's that going to happen? 
I'm, I'm, Gabriel, I'm an angel. I serve in the Lord's presence. Look at what he says. I serve in the Lord's presence of God, and I'm sent to speak unto you and to show you these glad. I'm giving you good news, buddy. Just take it. You've been praying about it for a long time. And so in the middle of all of this, we find that Zechariah is going to be silenced for nine months, folks. You're like, well, what's the big deal with that? You remember what I told you he was doing? When he would offer the incense on, the, on the, those hot coals and the smoke would go up, he would come out from the holy place and everybody would be down on their faces. And when he came out, his role was to pronounce a blessing on everybody that was there. And think about it, guys, is that he, everybody's on their faces waiting for Zechariah to come out and it's taking forever. They're like, man, when is this guy going to come out? What is he doing in there? And so he, he comes out, and remember, I told you he could only do it how many times in his life? Once. He comes out, and he's, he's supposed to give a blessing, and he comes out, and he can't say a word. You're like, well, what's the big deal? He has the greatest news that had been given to Israel in over 400 years. The Messiah is on his way. And by the way, I'm going to be having a boy and he's going to be the forerunner to the Messiah. And listen, he can't say one word about it to anybody. That's like the worst thing ever. They're going to, forever he's going to be remembered. You remember when we had that priest that went in one time to the holy place and like we waited forever. He finally comes out and he couldn't even say anything. He'll forever be remembered as that guy. Folks, what I find very interesting about this passage for us is that Zacharias had asked for a sign, and for nine months, he's going to have to use sign language to speak. You know, what I think is even more interesting than that is that for nine months, he can't talk, he can't say a word, and it's during that time I believe that Zechariah is going to be able to think about what God has just revealed to him. Think about how loud things are at Christmas and how you can go to Christmas caroling, you can listen to music in stores, you can hear people buying stuff at the registers and, and you can get caught up in all of the activities of Christmas, can't you? And here... In the heart of this priest, God silences him for nine months. In nine months, he's going to have to contemplate the coming of a Messiah. Contemplate the fact that his son will be the forerunner to the Messiah. And he's forced to be silenced, to watch, to look, to, to listen, and to pay attention to what's going on around him. And in all of the Christmas noises and madness, it don't let Christmas go by without being silent and contemplating and thinking about the coming of the, this Christ child at Christmas. And, and you're like, well, Ryan, what's the big deal with that? Listen, folks, when Zechariah is silenced for nine months and he's thinking about it, when his mouth gets opened, you know what he begins to do? He doesn't talk about he can talk again. He doesn't even talk necessarily about his son. You know what the first words are going to be? It's going to be a song of praising the fact that God has answered the prayer of Israel, that they're sending a Messiah, and his heart is overwhelming with, overflowing with, with worship about the fact that Jesus Christ is coming. And folks, one of the reasons I think that happened was is that he had the time to slow down, 
to contemplate and to think about the coming of a Messiah. Hey, folks, I've found that in our world and in our day, if we're not careful and we don't slow down and we're not silent and we don't listen, our hearts really aren't prepared to worship at Christmas like it should be. You know, when he's thinking about it, he's being reminded of the fact that things are really difficult right now, but God hasn't abandoned us. Times are dark, but God's on his way. There's hope. He's pursuing us. He hasn't abandoned us. There's a light. There's hope on the horizon. You know, as I was thinking about that this week, I'm not much of an artist, okay? So we're going to have a picture, a, a painting that I want us to put up. Back in 1646, there was a, um, a man by the name of Rembrandt that he drew a painting that's called the shepherd, uh, it's called uh, the Adoration of the Shepherds. When he drew this picture, it depicts a vision of the, the shepherds that were in Bethlehem. And when they had received the, the news that Jesus was born, they come to this barn, to this place where the Messiah was born. The painting that Rembrandt paints, it's very dark in order to cause people to be able to focus on the image and to look at the details of what's going on. You look at it, and in the center is a feeding trough, a manger where Jesus lays. And if you study it, you can tell that there's probably sheep around. You can see the outline of them a little bit at the very bottom. But one of the things that's interesting that he tried to portray is that at the bottom, you can barely see it, but there's a rooster at the bottom. The reason why he put that there was he's pointing to the fact that even as a child, the betrayal of Judas is looms in the future. If you pay attention in the back, you'll notice that there is a ladder there. If you look at it very closely, it looks like a cross. He's saying that even at Jesus' birth, the cross looms in his future where he's going, he was born to die. One of the most fantastic parts of the painting was this is that you notice that around baby Jesus, there's light. It's not a light. Rembrandt was different when he painted. You know, a lot of people from his day, they would put halos around him. He didn't do that. He painted him as normal. And notice that the light is on him. It's not actually on him. Rembrandt, when he explained his painting, he was showing that the light was actually coming out from him. And what he meant by that, folks, was this, is that in this child, in the birth of a Savior, was the hope of all the world. Things might have been dark, but when he was born, hope instantly came to the earth. And when people ask when things are difficult and when they're hard, and people say, is there any hope in the world? There was hope that invaded the world over 2,000 years ago in the person of Jesus Christ. And that's why we celebrate, because when he came, hope instantly came with him. He is the light of the world, the one that was born to die, so that we could have a hope. And in the midst of all of that, it's important for us to pause and to think and to contemplate the coming of a Messiah. But I want you to notice the next part. For nine months, Zechariah would be speechless. Without, without ability to be able to say anything at all. And what happens is, is nine months pass by and he has his son 
And eight days later, they have what Jewish people do. They have the point where they circumcise their son and they have a ceremony where they name their child. They invite in all their friends and family members. It's, it's, it's signaling the fact that he's coming into the covenant community with the other Jewish people. And when they came together and they were going to name this child, they, they look at Elizabeth and they say, what will you name this child? And everybody thought that he would be, you know, Zach Jr., all right? But that's not what they wanted. Elizabeth said, no, we're not going to name him Zacharias. We're going to name him John. Everybody's like, John? In their day, you named him after the, the father or after a relative. And they're like, why in the world would you name him John? And they look at John the Baptist. They said, Are you, you want this? And he asked for a tablet, an iPad. And so he, they brought it over. And, uh, and so they bring it over to him. And he, he writes, his name is John. And from the moment that he said his name was John, his mouth was opened up and he immediately began to burst forward into, into praise and began to sing songs about a coming Messiah. Now, here's the thing that you have to anticipate, folks. You ask yourself, if a person's been quiet for nine months and they haven't been able to talk about anything, okay, his, he might be able to try to clear things up with his wife, you know, about what he said. Oh, never mind. And, but, you know, what he, what, what he begins to do is this, folks. He instantly begins to burst forth into song. But what would you sing about the moment that you were able to open your mouth after nine months? It's a really interesting question. He begins a song that's called the Benedictus. It's called the Benedictus in Latin because it's just taken from the first word of, that came out of his mouth, blessed. It means blessed. Now, I want us to look at this song. His heart is bursting with gratitude over three different things that would happen at the birth of the Messiah. Number one, first of all, is this. His visitation brought salvation. Zacharias began to burst forth into song because the visitation of the Messiah, of this God child, this God man, would bring salvation to the world. Look at verse 68. It says, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath, what? Visited and redeemed his people. Look at verse 78. It repeats it again. It's a common theme. It says, the, the day spring from on high hath done what? Hath visited us. This is a fantastic word. When, when you have somebody experience a, a tragedy in your family, what's the first thing you do? Would you just write them a card and just send it in the mail? No, that wouldn't do. When you see somebody has a problem, you do what? You visit them. The idea of this word visit means to come personally. It's not to come by somebody else. It's, it's, a, it's the idea of a person that sees a problem and they go to visit the person personally with their presence. So when it says that he visited us, it's the idea that Jesus, he saw the lost condition of humanity. He saw what was going on and he personally chose to come and visit humanity. That's an incredible thought. You could actually interpret this verse. He came to put his, set up his tent with us. It's actually, if you look at John 1 verse 14, this is a fantastic verse. It says, in the beginning was the word. Or sorry, if John, uh, let's look at this again. John 1 14. And the word was made flesh 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the Father. And he says he was full of grace and truth. Think about that. When it says that he came to visit us, it was Jesus Christ. It was heaven coming to earth. It was the supernatural coming to the natural. It was the eternal God taking on human flesh. Why? Why did he come to visit us? Notice it says he came to redeem us. Folks, the idea of redeem is to make a payment of a price to release someone from bondage. And what Zacharias probably had in mind was that they would be freed up from Rome, but he never anticipated the fact that what would happen is the Jewish people would take the Messiah and they would do what? They would turn on him and they would crucify him. And folks, his death on the cross would redeem us and buy us back so that we would now belong to God. It was the price of redemption. He redeemed us. But I want you to see something I learned this week. You know, you can study a passage and you can never see some of the great details in Scripture. Look at what verse 69 says. And hath raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of the servant David. You're like, what is the horn of salvation? What is that all about? Some people might think, oh, well, maybe that's an instrument to broadcast the birth of this, this, this God-man. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about, in their day, they were very familiar with oxen. They would have these horns, right? They were, have you ever been around an ox? I mean, they got these huge, massive horns. And what does he mean by that? You see, the horns of an ox is a very powerful weapon. An ox has a huge body. It's a very strong animal. But all of its power is concentrated in a horn, right? When it charges, it's used as a weapon of offense. Now, stay with me. When David was saved from King Saul, when he was running away from him, look at what Psalms verse 18, uh, chapter 18, verse 2 says. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer and my God, my strength, and whom I will trust. He's my buckler and what? The horn of my salvation and my high tower. Did you know the only, this is the only time in the New Testament when you go back to Luke chapter one, the only time it ever mentions the horn of salvation in the New Testament? You're like, what does he mean by that? You see, as an ox concentrates all of its power and strength into the horn, it's used as an offensive weapon. Listen, folks, this is incredible. All of God's power, his divine strength, his victory, his weapon was concentrated in Christ who would be used to gore Satan and pierce death and gut sin. It, Jesus Christ was God's weapon to attack Satan, to win the victory for us. That's a fantastic thought. I was kind of reminded, and this is a, a really bad illustration of what I want to illustrate to you. I, uh, I'm a, I know you guys, I hate to even mention this because some of you don't know this about me. I'm a big Georgia Bulldog fan. And um, back in the Sugar Bowl one year ago, we played against University of Texas. And they have this huge steer that has these, these huge horns on it, okay? And I don't know if they were showing pictures of my mascot, Ugga, over there. 
But during the, the sugar bowl, that ox got loose and chased after that little bulldog. And I'm telling you right now, when, when Ugga saw that the steer was coming, he didn't stick around. He ran for his life. It was kind of symbolic of what happened to my team in that game too. But we're not going to talk about that. And so what happened was is it was a weapon of offense. Folks, we don't think about Jesus Christ this way, but the birth of Christ was a massive blow to the enemy. It was God pulling back the curtain and unveiling his weapon of the fact that in Jesus Christ, he was the weapon that would come to defeat Satan, defeat death, and to, de to defeat hell. All of it was beaten in the person of Jesus Christ. He came to fight for you. Folks, we celebrate that at Christmas because we're reminded of the fact that God didn't just sit back. He used his weapon of offense, Jesus Christ, to defeat Satan. And you have to understand, Israel had been, under, been defeated for 600 years in a row. They were ready for a victory. Folks, in our time of darkness and when things are difficult, remember, our victory was already set up in that baby in a manger over 2,000 years ago. So first, his visitation brought salvation, but notice this, his visitation fulfilled prophecy. As a godly priest, Zechariah understood that the Old Testament had prophesied about what Jesus Christ would do. And in Jesus Christ, all the prophecies of the Old Testament would be fulfilled. I want you to notice three of them. We'll look at three very quick. They're, we're going to have to go quick. The first one was a prophecy from the prophets. Look at verses 70 and 71. As he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us. Zechariah was being reminded of the fact that in Jesus Christ, all of the prophecies of the prophets in the Old Testament were being fulfilled. Folks, did you know that when Jesus was born, there was way, way over 40 different prophecies that were fulfilled in his birth? Folks, that's fantastic to think about that God was watching over his word to make sure all of it was fulfilled. The second was this, the prophecy to the fathers. Look at what he says in verse 72 and 73. To perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he sware to our father Abraham. Now, this is incredible because he's saying, he, notice he references the fathers and then he references Abraham. You're like, well, what's the deal there? Did you know that we always typically think of Abraham, the promise that God made to Abraham, but God, that's not the oldest prophecy in the scriptures about Jesus. The oldest prophecy about Jesus comes in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Let's look at that. Genesis 3, 15 says this, and I will put enmity between you, He's talking to uh, e, uh, between Satan and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Now, I'm not going to get graphic, but listen, women don't have seed, okay? So it, what does it mean? Well, he's referencing the fact that Mary would be a virgin and that she would conceive a child by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I'll put enmity between your seed and her seed, and it shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. 
What's he saying is that there's going to be this fight that's going to go on between Satan and Christ. Satan would bruise Jesus' heel, but Jesus would, would, bru- would, would stomp on and, 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 bruise, uh, and bruise his head, that he would ultimately get the victory. And for what purpose would Jesus come to do that? Look at verses 74 and 75. That he would grant unto us that we being delivered out of the hand of our enemies might do what? That we might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. You see, Jesus Christ came to defeat Satan to transform the lives of all of humanity. Folks, could you begin to think even now of all the lives that have been transformed because Jesus Christ came that night over 2,000 years ago. He came to transform. And Zechariah is looking forward to this and he's saying, you have fulfilled prophecy, this child will do this. Now notice this other one, the third one, the prophecy of a forerunner. Look at verses 76 and 77. And you, child, shall be called. Who's he talking to? He's holding his son John in his arms. Now picture that as he says this. He's, typically, fathers would pronounce a blessing over their child. And folks, as he's singing this song, how many times has he referenced John? If you read this entire passage, folks, all of his time is spent on praising this Messiah. He only spends two verses on his son. We'll talk about that in a minute. But look at what he says. And thou, child, shalt be called the prophet of the highest. For thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins. What's he saying? You, child, will be the forerunner to the Messiah. You'll prepare the way for Jesus Christ coming. And if you think through this with me, how old was Zechariah at this time? He was somewhere between 60 and 70 years old. And the prayer for his son was this. In this child, in this son of mine, would you use him to prepare the way for the Messiah? It's a father's prayer for his son. But folks, listen, he didn't overly exalt his son. He understood that his son was the one that would prepare the way. You see, the Messiah was the one that was the way. Folks, listen. In Jesus Christ, he was going to be the way. He spends all of his time praising this Messiah that would come. And you're sitting here thinking, well, Ryan, what's the big deal about all this prophecy stuff? I don't care about that stuff. Yeah, all the prophecies were fulfilled. What's the big deal with that? I want to read you a quote by Philip Ryken. He made this statement. Fantastic words. He said, salvation is not a human intervention, but a divine visitation. It's not something we achieve by going to God, but something that God has done by coming to us in Christ. Folks, when we think about all of the prophecies, you're like, well, what's the big deal? He spent over 2,000 years arranging history so that everything would happen just the way that he said. You see, the coming of Jesus Christ is the culmination of all history, folks. You see, in the Old Testament, everything pointed forward to who? Jesus Christ and his coming. 
That's what Zechariah is saying. He's saying when, this, when Jesus Christ, the Messiah, would show up, literally, this is the culmination of everything we've been waiting for. Everything comes down to the birth of Christ. They're looking forward to that event. But folks, us, as in the New Testament, what do we do? We look back to that event, and you're like, okay, big deal. All of time is measured off of his coming. Have you ever thought about that? Folks, this time of year, we were reminded of the fact that God had planned everything that would happen here with us. Every minute detail was taken into account when he planned the time for his son to come and invade earth to pursue all of us, folks. That is a fantastic thought. But notice this visitation, it brought salvation and it fulfilled prophecy. But lastly, and we'll be done, notice this last thing. His visitation brought hope. His visitation brought hope. Look at verse 78 and 79. And I love this verse. You might circle it. Through the what? I want to get everybody in here. I want you to follow with me. Will you say these two words with me? Through the what? Through the tender mercies of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us, to give light to them that sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. You see, when Jesus Christ came, it wasn't out of obligation. Nobody forced his hand. He freely gave himself, folks. And when it says it's through his mercy, mercy, God doesn't give us what we deserve. If we got what we deserve, he wouldn't have come at all. And it was through his tender mercies that he didn't want us to give, to give us what we, we deserved. He came out of mercy. He left his home in heaven and came down to dwell among us. Well, why did he do it? To give light to people that were in darkness, to people that were facing the darkness of death. He came so that they could live. He led people on a path that would bring them into peace with God. Folks, before Jesus Christ, the world was totally void of any hope at all. All they had was the promises of God. And when Jesus stepped down into humanity 2,000 years ago, light and hope came to our world in the form of Jesus Christ. He's the day spring. He's the sun that comes up on the horizon that shines light into a dark world. And folks, that's a big deal in the day that we live in. Times are difficult, we're living in dark days, but listen, when Jesus Christ came, light came to the world. He's still the hope of all the world. And you're like, well, Ryan, this is fantastic, but folks, Zechariah was bursting forward in song because of this. It was anticipation of what was about to come. What was this gift, this anticipation? Folks, follow along with me on this very last part. Stick with me. Why was it Zechariah was overflowing with worship as he thought about his coming? It was because it was an anticipation of another gift that was going to be given. You're like, Ryan, what's the gift? You would never pick up on this, but woven into the story are the characters. You have Zechariah, you have Elizabeth, and you have John. They were in their names pointing forward to the gift of Christmas. Did you know that? You're like, well, what do you mean by that? Well, Zachariah's name means this, God remembers. 
Elizabeth's name, you know what her name means? The promise of God. You want to know what John's name means? The grace of God. You're like, Ryan, what do you mean? Their names were pointing forward to the gift that we have in Jesus Christ. What's the gift? Well, when you put the three names together, this is what it means. God remembers his promise and he gives mankind God's grace. And God's grace is found in Jesus Christ, folks. That is fantastic. You see, what do we celebrate at Christmas? Why do we have hope? Why do we sing the Christmas carols? Because in God remembers his promise and he gave mankind grace in the person of Jesus Christ. But you see, for us at Christmas, the only people that it really matters to is those that understand they need his grace. I was reading a story this week, and I'll close. It's a story about Fiorello LaGuardia. He was the mayor of New York. He, uh, he was the mayor of New York during some of the worst days of the Great Depression. It was a difficult time for the city of New York. In New York, he had the nickname, I would hate to have this nickname, his nickname was Little Flower. Uh, he was five foot four, and he used to wear a flower on his lapel. And so they called him Little Flower, not a great nickname. But on a cold night in January 1935, he went into the courtroom and uh, he decided that he was going to take the place of that judge that was sitting for that night to give him a break. That night when he dismissed the judge and he took over the bench for himself, within a few minutes there was a poor lady that was brought into the courtroom. The judge sat there, LaGuardia said, you know, what's the case? What's going on? And this old lady that was poor began to go through the fact that she said, I lost my husband a year ago. And my daughter, her husband left her. And now she's sick and I've been trying to take care of my three grandkids. But we were out of food. I don't have a job. I had no way of being able to make a living to provide food for my family. So we went to the grocery store and I stole bread so that they could eat, so they wouldn't starve. LaGuardia's heart was broken, but the owner of the marketplace was there in the courtroom and he said, Judge, he says, I, I, I can't let, you can't let a lady like this go because she has to be punished to teach others a lesson or else other people will come into my store and they'll steal. LaGuardia looked down and he sighed and he said, Lady, I, I have to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. He said, it's going to be the finest $10 or 10 days in jail. After he said that, he pulled out of his pocket a $10 bill and he put it on the table and he paid the fine for her. And then he looked at everybody that was in the courtroom that day and he said, I'm going to fine everybody in this courtroom 50 cents for living in a town where a lady like this has to steal in order to feed her grandkids. When the hit the news, it reported that this lady made $47.50 in the courtroom that day. And supposedly, people stood up and applauded this judge that tried to uphold justice. But folks, he also showed grace. And folks, when I think about that, over 2,000 years ago when Jesus stepped down into our world and he took on flesh, it was God understanding that justice had to be met. 
but he also recognized that he could also offer us grace. And folks, the reason we celebrate Christmas is the fact that when Jesus Christ came down, he represented God's justice, but he also represented his grace to every single person that's here. He died in your place. He was born to die. And folks, today, we have to remember and be grateful for that gift that he's given us. I'm going to ask that we would bow our heads and close our eyes. And if you would just stand wherever it is that you're here in the auditorium, stand up. And you know, during this time, we want to offer up a time where you can respond to the message, how God leads you.